0: This is Rumble 7, What's in a Name? As a child, I love sorting things, organising and arranging things, even making lists. And from the age of 11 to 14 or 15, I kept a diary, filling it in every day. And although this makes my teenage cheeks redden a bit to think of it, I even scored each day at the end of the year using a system that I designed for myself. And oh, right! Yes, I still do have the diaries, and no, there's nothing worth reading in them, although they do contain occasional interesting lists of books that I borrowed from the library. And no, I definitely didn't connect bottles or buttons or anything else. I was already obsessed with mythology and sci-fi, I can tell from the book lists, but that's another story. I suppose I remember getting really hooked on mythology when my somewhat eccentric but interesting uncle took me aged about 10 or 11 to the British Museum to research 12th century illuminated manuscripts for a school project. I know, everyone else was doing transport or sport, but that was me. And anyway, some illustrations from the medieval period are positively surreal. After we viewed some texts and bought even more postcards, he insisted that we go and meet the Egyptian mummies. It was the stories woven into the Egyptian images which caught my interest. And it stuck. By the time I was around thirteen and a half, I had a Saturday morning job in a big clothes shop in Oxford Street, within walking distance of the British Museum. Now I could spend as many Saturday afternoons there as I wished. I would stand for hours in front of the papyrus of Arnie, trying to work out all the names of all the guardians of the various gates and categorise them into groups. I was also trying to teach myself hieroglyphics. I failed at both, and even though Gardner's Egyptian grammar sits on my shelves, inherited from my uncle, I still can't read Egyptian hieroglyphic texts at all. But then, I suspect I had just read too much Greek and Roman mythology. Or maybe it was that I had read too many neoclassical books of Greek and Roman myths, or with lists and tables assigning gods and goddesses into families or with their attributes and areas of influence. And most books on other myth cycles seemed to be organised in a similar manner. The Sumerian and Babylonian stories had gods and goddesses of this, and the Norse myths. Well, there were two different sets of stories, the Vanir and the Aesir, but it seemed as though they could be categorised. Thor was a god of thunder, Loki a god of mischief, and perhaps fire, and so on. Even British or continental Celtic figures seemed to be given their attributes and connected to the closest classical divinity. Aquasulis, Bath in the UK, was originally connected with the indigenous figure Sul, but the Romans recognised her as a form of Minerva, for instance. It seemed a commonly held system, even if some characters had to be squashed and squeezed a bit to make them fit. Okay, there were definite problems when I looked at, say, Japanese myths and folktales through this neoclassical lens, but I didn't really extend my interest to Asian mythology back then. And categorization wasn't just an obsession of mine. Back then, it was the most common way of approaching comparative mythology, you know, tables of correspondences, all neat and tidy. They can still be useful in specific circumstances, but equally they can be dangerously simplistic. Mind you, then there were the Hittite god lists. The Hittites set out to list and categorise every god and goddess that they ever encountered. Now, they really believed in correspondences, and that was back in the Bronze Age between 1600 and 1200 BCE. Later into my teens and twenties, I continued to follow my interests in mythology and archaeology, although I was talked out of, or perhaps bullied out of, studying archaeology. No No job for a woman, I was told. You'll end up dusting shelves. But that's trousers of time stuff. I read a lot. I devoured the books of Leonard Woolley, of course. He was the famous excavator of Mesopotamia in the first half of the 20th century. Think Agatha Christie, literally, she was invited to his digs. I love the epic of Gilgamesh, I still do. I've been trying to get to Ur and Uruk in southern Iraq for a long time, especially since my final meeting with my uncle about oh, ten or more years ago now. By then, he was in a wheelchair. We were, once more, back together in the British Museum, right by the standard of Ur. we have been discussing the ravages that had taken place in the region since he visited in the 60s. He grinned at me. I got there, he crowed. You won't now. I did want to prove him wrong, even if just for myself. I did try, but my financial circumstances and geopolitics all got in the way. Eventually, in late 2019, I was ready to book a trip for 2020. The pandemic saw off that opportunity. Sorry, I wandered off there, lost in shifting memory cloudscapes, back to the path. Okay, so I was bundled away from archaeology and studied literature instead. Understandably, as I got older and gained experience, I got over my desire to sort things into easy groups. In fact, I developed a general dislike of labels. Of course, both in literature and history, this was a time when long-held traditional viewpoints were being rigorously questioned. There was a feeling that we should be encouraged to research the evidence for ourselves, rather than just accept received wisdom. Big Brambley Patch coming up ahead. But before we go round it, I must add that the argument, certainly as I understood it and wrote about it at the time, was still about assessing the verifiable evidence, not just ignoring it and demanding that anything you decided to believe was true just because you liked the idea. Bramble Patch sidestepped, for now at least, Well, that was a long preamble, but now we're up on the hill and ready to admire the view, so let's take a good look at Irish mythology from where we stand now. I didn't really become absorbed in Irish mythology until the late 70s, but after that I read everything I could find. Except, of course, it all had to be in English. I read Lady Gregory's collections, Gods and Fighting Men and so on. I owned Celtic Myth and Legend by Charles Squire. I had most of the Rollins, Rollinson's books on Irish topics, as well as the very useful Celtic heritage and the brilliant Toyne. As I became more confident and familiar with the stories, I went to look at direct translation of the texts, especially the Elizabeth Grey translation of the Kathmaca some works like The Love of Corolla were more difficult, and I don't think at this point I ever tackled Adinianicus. Yet the Irish stories just grabbed me. There was a freedom of style, a fluidity of storytelling. And they were so different. There was no way they could be fitted into any table of correspondences. These stories told about deeds of culture heroes who were not burdened with simple attributions – there was no god or goddess of rain anywhere, and there were also so many powerful women. Perhaps I was also strongly drawn to Irish stories because in my history studies I was fortunate enough to have focused on 19th century Irish history, unusual for an education in England at that time. It led me to develop, shall I say, an anti-colonial view. I had also discovered the calumnies of Henry the Second's most prolific propaganda monger, and realised that they were still regularly repeated right down to the 20th century. But it wasn't just that. I knew I was missing so much more. So in 1990, with my two young children of five and three, I left my teaching post in Surrey and moved to the west of Ireland. There were one or two other reasons I chose Ireland, but it was, I have to admit, mostly so I could better study Irish mythology. And I did find out what it was that I was missing. Context. I needed to understand the stories in context, and I have to include not just their geographical context but the cultural-historical context as well. That formed a part of the landscape. For instance, although I successfully completed many exam questions on Joyce, how could I possibly get inside, say, Portrait of the Artist before I'd got to be in Dublin? Yeats' poetry was a bit easier. But standing on a bridge in drama visiting Hall Park and No I Didn't See Seven Swans, or staring up at Ben Bulban, certainly enhanced the experience. Even the misting, ever-shifting Irish light cast a new view of Gerard Manley Hopkins' poetic idea of inscape. But in essence, I just stopped seeing early Irish stories as exotic. The characters became more like, well, real people. Yes, They became part of the landscape. The other change was learning about the structure of early medieval Irish culture into which the text was set. The high status local chieftains, male and female, and their elite warriors. Think more in terms of self-promoting athletes than mere fighters. The feasting, the rituals of gift-giving, conspicuous consumption, all watched over in every sense by the feely, the poet class who could up your status or destroy it with their well-chosen words it must have been vibrant extravagant and unpredictable you were after all only as good as your last story i also began to understand how the post-norman colonial project that effectively got underway in the reign of Henry II fitted in. You know, the English king who was trying to hold on to half of France while attempting to keep some uppity barons plus some equally overconfident clerics, in his terms, under his regal thumb. Meanwhile, he didn't want any of them grabbing land and status in Ireland. No, he wanted to do all that himself. Now I really have stepped off the path. Sorry. So what roles do these story characters play? And were they regarded as divinities? Now I know that's something of a catch-all term that can be hard to define, but it will do for now. Most mythologies have creation stories, you know the sort of thing. The world may be formed by the tearing apart of earth and sky, the dropping of a seed into an ocean, or in one case by the honking of a goose. Often giants, titans and so on get involved. Humans are created by some helpful being, forming them from clay or the blood of a vanquished god, or even, in one case, creating talking-walking mateheads. If there ever were such Irish creation myths, none have survived, and there doesn't seem to be a place for them. The Levergawola, though a curated collection of ancient stories deliberately garnered around the 11th or 12th century, presents... A series of mythical migrations into an already fertile and functioning land. Well, I'm afraid there's no time to follow this fascinating path further for now, but I have just published a conversation with Jamie Madden, who has written an entertaining and relevant new view of of the Lava You can find it on storyarchaeology.com under the Stories in the Landscape Conversation top navigation link. Another difference is that there is no Irish equivalent to Asgard or Olympus. The Irish Otherworld is a bit different. Its location is, well, everywhere, given a sidestep in space and time. I was thinking about the opening of one of my favourite films, the 1963 Jason and the Argonauts, which commences with Zeus, along with Hera, played by Ola Blackman herself, looking down from their Olympian heights into the distant playground of Earth. Or how about Thor and Loki zipping back and forth from Asgard to Midgard? Nothing like that in the Irish stories. There are some particular figures, both male and female, who do move between this and the ever-present other world on occasion. But they are few and with one particular exception not the best-known characters. But we'll return to this on our way back. A lot of the most familiar characters of Irish stories are presented as people, men and women, albeit with some remarkably heroic and perhaps superhuman abilities. Now, to prevent this ramble from becoming a lengthy hike, I should now limit myself to only a few examples. So here goes. Some of the most important characters seem to be representatives of their societal class, often sometimes behaving badly. The aggrieved first wife of Mither, Fulmnacht, in the lengthy and time-travelling tale of Mither and Adine, goes to extreme and magical lengths to deal with the annoying second wife, including reducing her to a pool of water. However, as she is a qualified woman of words and cannot be restrained because she is obeying the letter, or should I say the word of the law, if not the spirit, well, there's not much they can do. Brickru, in Fled Brickrun is the Brugu who should be responsible for holding the place of peace in the feasting hall, but who stretches custom to cause as much mischief as he possibly can. Govnu the Smith exemplifies the respect for craft secrets among craftspeople, and goes on to survive in the much loved folk tales of the creative builder the Governzir. Dian and his daughter Aravid are healers, and have Agricultural connections hidden in their names, deenchaic in its earliest etymology, may mean eager plough and aravid as a measure of grain. Their names could well reference the considered importance of cereals, and particularly herbs and vegetables, to health. Then there are some characters, often female figures, who appear to have less agency and have a more symbolic role. And it's interesting to note that many of these women share similar names. Ethlyn, Ethlu, Ethna, Adine, etc. They're often mothers or connected with fertility. Goddess figures with specific attributes? Well, maybe you could make a case for that. But their names have the meaning of nut, kernel, potentiality. It's interesting that these characters never seem to be the ones listed as goddesses of fertility in popular Irish folklore books. Then there are the superheroes. Tales of Finn and his warband, Dermot O'Doovna, Golmut Mourner, many more. But let's take Cúhollán as a prime example. Now, he is said to be the son of Lou, who does have some godlike associations, which gives Cahoolan that comfortable familiarity. Phew, here's one who fits into the neoclassical tables, so we can describe him as a type of Achilles or Hercules and so on. Well, in that case, we might as well say that Superman is a type of Cahoolan. After all, they both have super strength and extremely troubled infancies. But come on, everyone enjoys a good superhero story and always has done. But if there isn't a handy radioactive spider around, then a mysterious, godlike, invisible father will do just as well. Ancestor figures are referenced in each of the story cycles. Several names, such as Delboth, regularly appear in genealogies. After all, who doesn't want to suggest that they are descended from an ancient and important founding ancestor? And many of these ancestors are women, the eponymous Danu, as well as the Tua Dé Trio, Eru, Banva and Fotla spring to mind, perhaps flidish also. They rarely have developed stories of their own, but are always in the significant background. Gods and goddesses? Maybe. And yet, as I said earlier, apart from the odd curse, as, as in the story of the in- interaction between the newcomer Milesians with the Dodon and Eru, they have little to say. Good names to add to a family tree, though. Something similar seems to be happening with the ancestor figures, connected with formation of geographical features, such as hills, wells, etc. These characters, like Shinnan, Clothru, Boand, and possibly Kleena, although she might belong to the next group, do have better-developed stories, and definitely seem to be more than Genie Loki, Spirits of Place. Some even get into the genealogies. Shinnan, however, does not. Come to think of it, in the Dinchenneke's poem of Athleag, Shinnan brings Finn a three-cornered stone on a golden chain which is then thrown into a river and it's said that when she will return in order to pull the plug on the river, the world will end seven years later. That's an odd one, maybe with some 12th century Christian interpolation. But the point of this just struck me. In the poem, Shinnan is named as the daughter of Mongorn. Now, there's a medieval telling explaining why Mongorm will have no progeny. So, neither of them can legitimately be included as a personal ancestor. Interesting. I'll have to think about that one. I mentioned earlier that we might meet story characters who move between the Irish intersecting worlds without danger of becoming lost in space and or time. Mither is a good example of a character with a foot in both worlds. His name means middle it was his role to maintain the balance and flow between the worlds ensuring ongoing prosperity mither has one main story the one about his relationship with adine but perhaps his very close identification with irish law caused him to be replaced by the figure of Malinan from over the sea in post-Norman times. You can find two whole podcast episodes on this topic in the Story Archaeology Archive. Look for Series 4, Episodes 12 and 13. And then there are the Messengers. In The Sick Bird of Cahuln, he's punished, suffering extreme debility, after he has shot at white seabirds linked by a golden chain. He is both beaten and eventually healed by otherworld Liban and Fand, after he understands that he has damaged the flow between the worlds represented by the injured birds. There's much more to this story, but that will do for now. Birds do seem to represent this open channel through which messages may travel. Later, in the Imrova, white seabirds also bring messages to the voyager monks, although these are now often regarded as the souls of the blessed other world women may be addressed by title Aedin is hailed as befind beautiful or fine lady and as mentioned already in the dinhanicus poem of athrig shinan is addressed as behuna lady of the wave there is one more character who moves freely along these interworld paths i did say there was one who was better known this is of course the morrigan she is the messenger par excellence She plays a major part in two Irish epics, the Kathmagadurit and the Cunha. In Moitura, she is the herald, the the recorder of all that happens. She speaks the last words, acknowledging the harmony that has been restored by the Douglas calling back of the Glasgowan and warning about complacency in the future. Maintenance of balance is always a work in process. She's described as powerful and beautiful, and when she meets the Dagda at the River Unshin, nine loosened tresses were on her head. She plays an important role in the tour as well, coming out of the cave of Oenigat, all in crimson red, with a one-legged chestnut horse, bringing the cow that will become the mother of the brown bull. I do find it difficult to visualise a one-legged horse. Uh, well, not, not one that's moving anyway. She also offers herself to Cahulon, giving him her support. He turns her down with the brash confidence of youth, telling her that he has no time for the whiteness of women's size. Morgan is a battle-herald, a battle-poet, but a goddess of war. Not really... Yet already, by the time of the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, she is described all in grey as a lean and nimble hag leaping over the spears of battle. Has her role as a herald and messenger been forgotten? Is she already becoming equated with the folkloric Banshee? The other world messengers, although they may have their own personal stories, especially Franz, do appear to be personifications of their message in some ways, representing the need for compliance with natural law. But the Morrigan is something more. Her position in the mythological cycle, along with the Dagda, does place this couple as something special, definitely indigenous to Ireland and very old. It could be that the ultimate Brugu, the Dagda, with his great cauldron capable of providing physical satisfaction for all and perhaps comfortable inebriation, wielding his boundary marking club, holds and guards the safety of the world we manage and where we live and thrive. The Morrigan, just as the Dagda finds her in the Kathmaka astride the river Unchin, has one foot in both worlds. She guards the unpredictable, and mysterious other. These two coexistent worlds must be held in balance, and her warnings of dangerous imbalance are not always going to be welcome. Perhaps this is why the cave of Oinigat or Rathcrohan is so often known as the cave of the Morrigan. This is one of the few static and tangible uh, crossing points between the worlds in myth and folklore. Gods or ancestors? There's a good case here for both of them. The interaction of these 2 coexisting worlds is presented as metaphysical, how can I put it, a metaphor if you like, and literal reality at the same time. Perhaps they were. It didn't seem to represent a problem to the poets who first related the stories, or the literate monks who collected and curated them. The character of Merthave is possibly the best example of this. I've often been asked by children if Merthave was real, by which they clearly mean... Was she a historical figure? I tell them there were many Medhav or Maeve, strong female leaders, but Mether's story stands for them all. A bit of a fudge, maybe, but kind of true. Mether's story can also be told in a way that makes her a symbol of sovereignty, a goddess of the land. That is, a potential candidate for kingship at Croakorn had to symbolically marry Medhav. So is she a human warrior queen who made appalling errors, including the killing of her own sister and threatening the stability and prosperity of the land, or a symbol of sovereignty? There's good evidence for both, but personally I feel that her story tells more about how not to run a country. Of course, approaches to mythological stories, including all the aspects that are most emphasised, change and change again over time. That's part of the timeless quality of mythology. It has such applicability, being able to still speak to people in different times and different circumstances. Now, in this ramble, I've been deliberately selecting examples from texts demonstrating language from around 800,000 years ago or more, rather than from late folkloric sources. I was doing this so that I could assess as far as possible how the characters were regarded then. So... Okay, gods, ancestors or culture heroes, does it matter? Now, I'm not denying the importance of what we now call religion. Iron Age votive discoveries in pools and other liminal spaces demonstrate regular attention to the agency of unseen forces, which may need to be appeased, cajoled or just celebrated. However, for approximately the last two millennia, much of the world has become accustomed to monotheistic religions generally supporting state-run systems. Now coated with a generous layer of neoclassical decorative frosting, there's a lot of baggage attached to the term god or goddess. So, what's in a name? It probably doesn't matter. But I generally prefer to use the term ancestors, culture heroes and so on. Irish mythology has a special place in world mythology. It largely survived homogenization of the Roman Empire. The mythology was considered important enough to be protected by literate clerics under the threat of colonisation. Much of the folklore held out largely in the west of the country, faced by plantation. And now it's becoming more widely popular. Recently, a young Japanese academic from Sendai was explaining to me that young people in Japan were searching for Irish mythological stories. He was concerned that the ones they could access would accurately represent the individuality of the original texts. He's been translating texts directly from early Irish into modern Japanese. Now, if he is determined to represent them as uniquely Irish, then how can I seek to do less? Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember on www.storyarchaeology.com you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.